You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. So if you've got a Bible, open it up. If you've got an app, do that. If you don't have anything to look at Scripture with, we're going to put it on the screen for you this morning so that you can follow along. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to be in verse 1 through 9 this morning. So let me paint a picture for you. You can tell me if this has ever happened to you before. You won't tell me, but I'll be able to know whether this has ever happened to you before. So you're just going through your day. Maybe you're at work. Uh, Maybe you're running errands. Maybe you're sitting at home and your phone buzzes. And you look down and you've got a message from either some strange email or some strange number that you don't recognize. And you open it and it says, hello, and it says your name in all capitals. So you know it's weird. Something's weird. This is not a friend. And it says, hello, Todd, or your name. And it says, just a reminder, you have a doctor's appointment next Thursday morning. And if you're like me, usually when that happens, you go, who who did this? Who? Who told them I was going to come? I don't remember this. Honey, did you make me a doctor's appointment? Why am am I getting this? I don't want to go. Now, the reality is you probably made that appointment because the last time you were at the doctor, you were so glad to get out of there at the end. They're like, would you like to come back in six weeks at 645 in the morning? And you're like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. I'll be there. Because you don't want to go. There's something about going to the doctor. Listen, it happened, it happened to me last week. This week, excuse me. Thursday, I went to the dentist. Now, I have a great dentist. Dr. Paris Kitt and his team, they're great, okay? I just want to offer that disclaimer first. They're great, okay? I've been scared of the dentist ever since I was a little kid, and Dr. Kitt and his team have almost cured me of it, okay? And so I had an appointment Thursday morning. And so I went Thursday morning, and I love the dentist, but this is what I always want to do. This is my fantasy. I've never done it. I don't have the guts to do it. This is what I always want to do. When I walk in that room, and I sit in the chair, and the dental hygienist comes in and says, hey, Todd, how are you today? This is what I always want to say. I always want to go, okay, listen, before we get started, I haven't been flossing like I'm supposed to, okay? You're a grown-up. I'm a grown-up. I've been a bad boy, okay? Can we not have the 30 minutes of shaming while I'm in the chair? Can you not get out the giant plastic teeth and the giant toothbrush and like, this is how you do it. I don't, I don't, I don't like that. And that's the reason you don't want to go to the doctor. Because inevitably, there's a chance that when you're at the doctor towards the end of the visit, the doctor's going to give you a list of some stuff that you need to do or need to stop doing. So there'll be, there's a chance, there's a moment you're sitting there in your underwear and they're telling you all the things you're doing wrong, Right? I mean, the number of times Paris Kitt has asked me, Todd, do you eat Oreos? Of course I eat Oreos, okay? But we don't want that. We don't like that list. We don't like that moment where the doctor is saying, hey, I need you to stop doing this, or I need you to try to do this, or I need you to, you know, this medicine is kind of doing something weird to your, to your blood count. We want to change the medicine. We don't like that because it feels like just this one-two punch of all the things you're, you're doing wrong. But but the reality is, is that our text today, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9, is a little bit like that. It's a little bit like going to the doctor. And that we have, starting in verse 2, this really long, brutal list. It's a hard list to hear, especially if you're thinking about it for yourself. But there's a reason why the doctor gives you the breakdown. There's a reason why the dentist 
sits beside you and tells you what he or she wants you to do. They're not just giving you the list because they like lists or they, they need to check it off some sort of document in the office. Your doctor tells you that. Your dentist tells you that because there's a, there's a bigger moral. Okay? So when my doctor is telling me what to do or is changing my medicine or my dentist is saying we need to do this or we need to watch out for this, there is this bigger moral. There's this punchline. There's this other bigger thing, which is my or your overall health. So I want you to do these things and change this thing. And I want you to modify this thing, not just because I want you to do these things, but because these things contribute to the overall health of your life. That's why they give you the list. They want you to do that. That's what they want you to do. They want you to do it, yes, but, but it, it has an impact in your life. So we know that when we read what the author is writing to Timothy, we know that Timothy is a pastor. And this is a pastoral letter. Here's Timothy. He's trying to love people. He's trying to proclaim the gospel. He's trying to pastor people. And he, he, he's reading these letters that we're reading now that are helping him, that are encouraging him. It's a pastoral letter. You need to remember that because in a second, it's going to seem like that's important because it is. It's a pastoral letter. Look at verse 1, 2 Timothy 3.1. <clears throat> but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. What a way to start the text, right? Terrible times in the last days. Let's look at those two phrases before we go. First of all, terrible times. So if, if you do any research into Bible translation and how we, how we get to what the Bible says now, you will find that experts believe that in this phrase, this terrible times, the, the connotation of the word used there, we believe, is only used one other time in the New Testament. And it's used in the book of Matthew in a story about two demon-possessed men. And so the meaning of that particular word, terrible times, actually translates to what we might say savage or fierce or animal-like. So the author's telling Timothy, all right, it, it's going to be bad. It's going to be savage. It's going to be fierce. It's going to be animalistic in the last days. So let's look at last days. This actually really applies to where we are in the church calendar because if you were here a few weeks ago, you remember that Ross told you about Pentecost. There's a Sunday every year in the church calendar where, where we remember and celebrate that, that the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus' followers. That's called Pentecost, and we celebrate that. What you may not know is just a few weeks before that, in the church calendar, there's a holiday called Ascension. And this is where we celebrate and remember when Jesus ascended back up to heaven. And so when you think about the last days, this is what that means. So Jesus comes, he's sent by the Father, He's born as a baby. He grows up. He starts his ministry. He spends his ministry healing, um, teaching, proclaiming that he's the Messiah, that he's the only way to heaven. He is um, arrested, tortured, executed, hung on a cross, buried, is raised from the dead, then spends time with his followers for a short amount of time, and then... In God's word, we find this gathering where he ascends up to heaven. And before he does, he tells his followers, I'm, go I'm going up to the Father. I'm going to leave you my Holy Spirit. I'm going to leave you a comforter. And I'm going to come again. And when that happens, when the ascension happens, that's when the clock started. Okay? So anything after the ascension and before the return of Christ is the last days. We are closer to that than we ever have been. So when you read that, I don't want you to think, oh, this is some far off thing. This is some end of the world sort of thing. No, this is now. We are in the last days. I don't know how far we are on that timetable, but we are. 
So understand that the author's talking about right now, where you are, okay, in time. Anything that falls in between that time, being the last days, applies to us. We don't know when he's coming back, but we know he is, and so we're on this countdown. So what, what the author's about to do now is he said, okay, Timothy, it's in the last days, it's going to get bad, it's going to get savage, it's going to get animal-like. And he's about to give Timothy this list. But remember, there's, when I read it, I just want you to remember, there's a punchline coming, there's a moral coming, there's a reason coming for this. All right. Look at verse 2. This is verse 2, 3, 4, and 5. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good. He keeps going. Treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with such people. So I want to tell you what I think about this list. I actually believe that this list starts with this heading, people will be lovers of themselves. And I believe the rest of those things all come out of that. So if you are a lover of yourself, I believe you will find yourself to be a lover of money. You'll be boastful. You'll be proud. You'll be abusive. I believe that that's the fount from which all of this stuff comes. Now, it's worth pausing here because being a lover of yourself. So listen, if you uh, take in a lot of Christian media, so let's say you watch a lot of Christian movies or you listen to podcasts or you buy a lot of Christian books, and especially if you listen to a lot of Christian music, I want to make a distinction here, okay? Because if you, if you consume a lot of Christian media, especially in music, and you guys know that I love music, especially in music, you will hear a lot of things that, that sound like you should love yourself. So you'll hear a lot of songs about, you know, you're a masterpiece, you're a beautiful work of art, you are righteous, redeemed, holy, loved as you are, accepted. You, you will hear that a lot if you listen to a lot of Christian media. And it can be easy for you to go, well, wait a minute, you know, Christian radio is telling me I need to love myself and accept myself, but now here's this letter talking about how terrible it's going to be because people love themselves. And so here's the distinction I want to make before we go any further. So when you hear a sermon or a song or a conference or read a book that's saying those things about being righteous and being redeemed and being a masterpiece and a work of art, I want you to understand that what those things are supposed to do, and hopefully they do, is point you toward being thankful for Christ. So what those things are doing is they're reminding you that because of the work of Jesus, you are made right with God. A better way to say it is those things are about identity right? Those things are about who you are in Jesus. I believe that 2 Timothy 3.2 is about priority, not identity. So if you're in Jesus and you're his, you are protected and loved and, and you are accepted. That's who you are as a person. But, but you can easily fall into the trap of prioritizing yourself. You can love yourself. And I believe that when you do that, you'll find that you start loving a whole bunch of other things. So there's a difference. There's identity and priority. I believe that this letter to Timothy is talking about priority. So, so what does it mean now? He gives this really long list. You have to remember that this is a pastoral letter, okay? So this is a letter to a pastor. This is a guy who's trying to love people. He's trying to preach Jesus. He's trying to pastor people. And this list serves as almost like a litmus test, right? So if I look at this list and I think, oh man, I, you know, 
I'm kind of loving myself. I'm kind of love money. I kind of am proud. I'm abusive. If I do that, if I find that in myself, it sort of sort of convicts me a little bit like, oh, I think I'm loving myself. I think I'm living as if my happiness is the most important thing. And the passage is telling us here that this is dangerous. But it's not just a list. Remember we said that the doctor has a punchline. He has a moral. The dentist has a reason. We have the reason here. Okay? The scripture tells us that all this bad stuff, all this stuff we're not supposed to be doing, all these selfish things are summed up like this. Having the form of godliness, but denying its power. I grew up uh, in a church tradition that I think misunderstood this a little bit. So I grew up in church, and I will tell you, as best as I can remember, any time this was ever preached, it was preached as if we were talking about, and Ross has mentioned it in this series already, was talking in the late 70s, early 80s, apocalyptic Christian movie thing. And so when I would heard we could hear this preach as a kid, most of the time it would be preached like this, as if this text was for the, the heathen, wretched, God-hating, liberal, awful people, like at, at the, the, the lost people. In the last days, they're going to get more savage and they're going to get more terrible. And I think that does apply. I do think that we live in a world that's broken by sin. I think that that's true. But remember, this is a letter to a pastor. The author's writing it to Timothy, a guy who's trying to minister and lead church people. Yes, the text is about them, the outside people, but it's also about you. I mean, he said it. You can have a form of godliness. He's talking about people who look godly. This is about me. This is about you. It reminds me uh, of, a, of a friend I have, a family friend who's been a preacher for a really long time. And I heard him tell, as a kid, I heard him tell this story over and over again. I don't know if it was true. It's a little too good to be true. But who knows? Now that I've been in ministry a while, it could have happened. But he would tell this story that he had prepared this sermon, and it was a hard one. I mean, he was really coming at the congregation. He was trying to speak prophetically, and it was pretty tough, and it wasn't real funny, and it was pretty serious, and it was kind of finger-pointy, and he got through it, felt like it went okay, and went and stood at the back of the church, and everyone's leaving, you know, and he's shaking everyone's hand, and down the aisle comes this old woman who'd been in the church forever, and she was just grumpy and grouchy and cantankerous, and he thought, oh man, what's going to happen now? And he, he tells that she shook his hand, and she said, well, I don't know who you were preaching to today, but you sure gave it to him. And he said, what he wanted to say was, I was preaching to you. That was you. And you missed it. I'm here to tell you that, that when we open God's Word, you need to know that God's Word is for you. Yes, we want to understand context. But, but God's Word is for me and it's for you. It should teach us and lead us to be more like Jesus. All of this stuff that stems from loving ourselves. We can have the form of godliness, but lack the power. You can look spiritual. You can play the part and yet be completely empty. You can have an empty faith and on the outside look as godly as you can be. When we give our affections to, to something other than what God intends for us, we will have no power. We will have a life of no power. And when that happens, we will find ourselves chasing our own pleasure. The end of the text, 
which, which a lot of people sort of hone in on, and it's, it's worth looking at. The very last verse, having a form of godliness, denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Why would the author tell a pastor, okay, people are going to be going through this, have nothing to do with them? Well, what we believe uh, this means is this is the author telling Timothy, so preach the gospel, be faithful, proclaim Christ, but watch out that you don't get sucked into this thing. So be careful of these people. So we should already know that it's dangerous. If the author's already telling Timothy, okay, here's what you got to deal with, but watch out. Be careful of this stuff. He says that we can have the form of godliness, but we can lack the power. We can have an empty faith. When we find ourselves in this position, uh, it should concern us. It should worry us. So what, what the author's done here in the first part of this passage is he's just told us how this happens. So he's just told you that when you love things other than what God wants you to love, when you spend your time and your money and your thought and your attention on things other than what God wants, you will end up having an empty faith. That's how it happens. Now the next part of the scripture, he's going to tell you what it looks like. Okay, He's going to keep going. So he's just told you when you do these things, you're going to end up with an empty faith. And now he's going to scare us even more because he's going to give you some examples of what happens. Look at verse 6. He's talking about people who have the form of godliness, lacking the power they're in. And he says, They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. This is what that means. When you have a form of godliness but no power, when you have an empty faith, when you love the wrong things, first of all, you'll become a manipulator. So he just said, they're like people who worm their way in, who, who take advantage of gullible people. When you love the wrong things and you have an empty faith, you'll do whatever it takes to meet your own needs. You'll become a manipulator. The second thing, you'll become loaded down with sin. When you live this way and all you worry about is meeting your own needs, you're going to find that you are surrounded by sin. And the third thing he says is that you will be swayed by evil desires. If you are used to seeking pleasure above all things, you will find real fast that your desire will run away with you. So, so what the author is saying here is like this is what happens. This is what can happen to your heart and to your life when you love the wrong things. I'm not saying you're supposed to be perfect, but what the, what the scripture is telling us is be careful of this. This is dangerous stuff when you love yourself above all. Look at verse 7. He keeps going. Talking about these people. Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected. So it, it, it gets a little worse here. Let me read verse 7 again. Always, so if you're loving the wrong things, you will be a person who's always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. So then he mentions Janus and Jambres. Okay, so I'll be honest, I had never heard of Janus and Jambres. Okay, and if you open up your Bible or your app and you look for Janus and Jambres, this will be the only place you see them mentioned by name. Okay? It's the only place. But we believe that they are two magicians 
that we saw in Exodus 7. Okay, I'll read that in just a second. So, what we believe about this, you may think, well, how do we know? And I'll tell you, they're not mentioned in Exodus 7. But actually, Janus and Jambres are mentioned in numerous Jewish, Christian, and pagan documents that we found. They were magicians. They were, in a sense, famous. So, you... At the risk of being flippant, you could think of them like a David Blaine, okay? Like a Chris Angel. Or if you're an old person like David Copperfield, you know, who made the Statue of Liberty disappear. Janus and Jambres were famous. They were famous magicians. And, and, and when you look at Exodus 7, this, this will make sense. Let, let, me, let me read it to you. Starting in verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Now, this may seem a little weird, but I promise it'll make sense. So remember, Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh, and they're saying, you have to let God's people go. You have to let God's people go. And Pharaoh keeps saying no. And so Aaron throws down his staff, and it turns into a snake, which is amazing. You know, the old Ten Commandments movie, you remember? That's my favorite scene, you know? Doesn't hold up, looks pretty fake now, but throws his staff down, and it becomes a snake. And so Pharaoh says, oh, I got guys that can do that. And so the magicians come out, and, and their staff turns to a snake as well. And then Aaron's snake eats theirs. Here's what you need to understand. This is why Paul's referencing these guys. These are people who could do the same stuff as Aaron. On the outside, they could do the same trick. So Aaron does the trick. They do the trick. They've got the same form, the same style, the same ability as Aaron did. But what ends up happening is... The one snake ends up devouring the two snakes. The reason Paul's mentioning this is because we are seeing the difference between someone who just has the form and someone who just has the power. That's what we're supposed to learn here. That's why the author is referencing this. They were not the same as Aaron. They might look that way from the outside, but they were not. Look at verse 9. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. So he's zooming back out now, and now he's back to talking about us. Okay, so he's talking about what happens when we become, when we live with an empty faith. He's referenced Janice and uh, Jambres, and we've talked about them. And now he's back to talking about us, referencing them. Once again, they will not get very far, because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Because just like Janice and Jambres, when I love my own pleasure more than God, when I put my needs first, when I operate in a state of spiritual emptiness, my folly will become clear to everyone. Eventually, my empty faith will get outed. Janice and Jambres did a cool thing, but it did not keep God from getting His people out of there. For all of the coolness it was, it did not work. It was folly. They couldn't even keep their snakes alive. Their folly became clear to everyone. So, how do we fix this? This is not like an extremely hopeful passage. I mean, this is, 
This is the end of the, t- the passage we're preaching today. Verse 9. It seems sort of hopeless. How do you fix this? If you are in a state of spiritual emptiness, if you are loving yourself more than God, how do you fix it? Believe it or not, the answer is in here. And I want to zoom back just for a second to verse 7 again. Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Verse 7 has already painted this picture for us. It's almost right in the middle of our passage where it says that when you are this way, you can learn and learn and learn and not come to a knowledge of the truth. That's the point right there. That is the fulcrum on which this passage rests. That you can get to a point where you can learn and learn and learn and never come to a knowledge of the truth. That's what you're supposed to care about. That's how you're supposed to fix this. You have to know what's real. You have to know what God thinks. You have to know what God values. You have to know what God is doing. You have to come to a knowledge of the truth. What does that mean? The first thing is you have to understand and receive the gospel of Jesus. You have to know that you cannot save yourself. You have to receive the work of Christ and receive the gospel of Jesus because you cannot be holy enough on your own. You just can't. I can't. You can't. Hate to break it to you. You can't. To come to a knowledge of the truth means that you understand that God sent His Son Jesus and that Jesus, in obedience to the Father, went to the cross and paid for your sin and He paid for my sin and He set us free. That's where all that identity comes from, that we belong to Him. If you don't want to have an empty faith, you have got to know and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's first. And the second thing, I know this is not a surprise In a Bible church, you have to hold on to the gospel. You have to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you have to know God's word. You have to know what God cares about. You have to know what God says. You've got to fill your life with God's word. You've got to put the truth inside of you. Many, many years of people preaching this sermon, you will hear this phrase thrown around, and it's so good. Many preachers will say that this text is about the difference between being spiritual and being biblical. You can buy the t-shirt, you can listen to the radio, you can go to the conference, you can have all the podcasts, you can show up at church, you can serve on the praise team, you can do all this stuff. You can be spiritual and never be biblical. And if you're like me, I can be spiritual like that. If you've been a Christian very long, you can do it. You figured out how to fake it. And what God's Word is constantly convicting me of and hopefully you of is that God calls us to know what the truth is, not just what feels good and not just what looks good, but what is true. What does He want us to be about? What does He say? What does He value? You have to know God's Word. God's Word, the truth of God's Word, will confront your selfishness. Ross has said it many times. I'll say it again. When you read God's Word, it should sting a little. It does not always feel like a pep rally. And that's by design. I mean, we see all of these references in Scripture, how how God's Word is like a sword that separates, that cuts away. That's what God's Word will do to your selfishness. God's Word will go to war against any and every idol you've exalted for yourself. It will do that. That's what God's Word will do. There's one thing, and we didn't hit it, for this reason, because I, I think this matters as we talk about kind of how to apply this. So back when we talked about Janice and Jambres, it said, um, you know, they are like the, the teachers who oppose the truth and they are, they are rejected. 
So some of you know this, if, you're, you know, if you've been a Christian very long, if you follow a lot of Christian sources, I find this stuff as being in, in ministry. But I feel like we're in a day and age where about every month there's some new controversy, some new video of a preacher saying something or some tweet or some book comes out. And, and, and as of late, there seem to be all these things that are sort of stirring people up because it's sort of this concerning thing where you're hearing preachers, and I think what they're trying to say is that um, we don't worship the Bible, okay? So, so we go to God's Word for truth, but we don't worship the Bible. We worship the, the Father. We worship Jesus. We don't worship the Bible. But in a lot of things recently, you're seeing preachers, and they're talking about, hey, don't be too legalistic. Uh, you need to disconnect some from the Old Testament. You need to watch out and, and not get all caught up in, in the legalism. And I think I know what they're trying to say, but I want to tell you why that's dangerous and why that I think that applies to these these teachers that are referenced when we talk about Janice and Jambres. I mean, just a few weeks ago, I saw a very, very famous, well-known Christian speaker, writes books, has video series, hosts Bible studies, this really famous person who sort of puts this, this tweet out that reads like, hey, make sure that, you, you know, that you're not just reading the Bible. Make sure that you're out living and, and, and living your faith and loving people. And I think that's true. But the only thing that popped to mind is like, are we like in an epidemic of people reading the Bible too much? Like... I mean, is that, I, I'm, and, and I know that that is a silly way to look at it, but I don't know anybody like that. I don't know anybody who looks at me and goes, well, I'm doing fine. I just, dead going, I just read the Bible too much, you know? It's kind of like when you go to the job interview and they're like, what's your weakness? Oh, I work too hard. That's my weakness. Listen, every time I read God's word, if it stings or even if it's the pep rally, I mean, it doesn't matter. Every time I read God's word, I come away thinking, I, I need more of this in my life, not less. I mean, I want to tell you, the enemy, our enemy, Satan, is very, very clever. And he will seek to distract you in any way he can. This may seem unrelated, and I didn't do it in the first service, but now I don't have a service after this. I can just go as long as I want, I guess. But sometimes, I just tell you, as the, as the guy who leads worship here, we have a lot of songs we don't do here. We're pretty picky about our songs. Some people would say, too picky. The band sometimes tells me I'm the worship Nazi. You know, like, like I pick these songs apart, you know, with a fine-tooth comb. But, but there is a reason why. And I'll just give you this example. And I think it applies to more than just music. But, but if the enemy is seeking to destroy us and distract us, and I think that he is, and I think God's Word tells us that he is, if there is some sort of battle, some sort of war going on where the enemy wants to confuse us or mislead us or to keep us from the truth, I think that the enemy will take any chance he can. And if he can distract you with a lyric that's almost true, a book that's almost right, a Bible study that's 70% accurate to what God says, He's just made a huge inroad in this battle to distract you and to distract me. See, the, the enemy will try to subtly distract you. He will not come in the cape and the horns and the pitchfork. He will come in the subtlest of ways. That's why you have to know God's Word. That's why I have to know God's Word. If I'm the guy picking songs around here, i got to know God's Word. Because when one of those lyrics comes through and I say, I don't know if that's right. And somebody goes, well, why am that right? I need to know why. I don't need to say, well, that just doesn't feel right. I need to know what God's Word says. You need to know what God's Word says. The enemy will try to trip you up any way he can. 
the truth of God's word will confront us and correct us and will make us more like Jesus and it will infuse us with power. There's a good reason to be about God's word. So what do you do if you're in this place? Maybe you're like, okay, I hear you. What do I do now? If I'm worried that I'm loving myself too much, if I worry that I have an empty faith, I've got the form of godliness. Well, like we said, you need to be a Christian. You need to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are not a Christian, please, please talk to me after we're done today. Because that's step one. You need to know the gospel. You need to be You need to belong to Christ. You need to be His and you need to surrender your life. But the second thing I would say is use any and every way you can to get God's Word into you. Maybe that means joining a Bible study. Maybe that means doing a quiet time before you go to work in the morning. Maybe that means listening to uh, Scripture on your phone. Maybe it means joining a life group. Maybe it means starting to take notes in the sermon. Find a way to get God's Word into you. But I'm going to give you something even more specific before we're done. So, you know how sometimes you go to somebody's house and and they've got like, you know, they have decorations on the wall. And of course, on one wall, there's like a sign that says, Live, Laugh, Love. Anybody have a Live, Laugh, Love? Okay. So there's a Live, Laugh, Love. But a lot of times, if you're in in a Christian's house, you will see, you know, maybe a plaque or cross stitch or something, you know, they have a scripture, you know. Me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, some of these verses, and, and some of you do this, and, I, and we've done this, and I have friends who do this. But sometimes you go to somebody's house, and especially if they've got children, maybe they've got you know, little scriptures up on the, the fridge. Or I even had a friend who, man, if you went into her bathroom, you couldn't even see yourself in the mirror because she just had these scriptures like all over, like just going to surround my life with God's Word, which is awesome. So that's a great tip. But here's the deal. I'm 41 years old, been a Christian most of my life. I've never seen anybody have this scripture on a mirror. I've never seen it. I've never seen that. My advice to you is maybe, maybe you do take 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5, and you put it in front of you. This This list of bad things, this list of things that aren't pleasant, this list of dangerous things, maybe for a while you put that in front of you. You let that guide you. You let that remind you, oh yeah, I don't want to have the form of godliness but no power. Because I think as you do that, as you get God's Word into you, those moments in your day that will inevitably come where you'll be selfish or you'll be a lover of money or you'll be boastful or you'll be disobedient to your parents, if you've got God's Word in you, if you belong to Him, if you have God's Word in you, when that happens, something will just sting a little. Like, ah, that's that 2 Timothy 3 thing. That's me. That's me. I I need to live in God's power. I I would encourage you to don't shy away from the hard verses. Don't shy away from the convicting verses. Embrace them. Put them in front of you. God's word will confront your selfishness, but it will take you to such a place of freedom and he will be able to use you. His power will work through you. So I want to pray for us today as the band comes and I'm going to pray that God's word would come alive in your life, that you would find a way to let it confront all of your selfishness. Would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the conviction of it, even the difficult stuff.